Well, thank you for coming back again tonight, and I'm looking forward to the study we're going to have. This morning, I gave you a litany of things that are happening, events unfolding in our world that would seem to indicate we're moving so quickly to that time of the rapture of the church. There's not one prophecy that has to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church. In fact, let me get... My microphone stands, this first microphone stand represents Jesus shouting, the archangel shouting, the trump of God sounding, and we're caught up to be with him in the air. Now this is the next event. If the wall over there was 6,000 years ago, uh, that's when Jesus created everything, brought everything into existence in six 24-hour days, comes along for 4,000 years, comes, lives, died, buried, resurrects, goes to heaven. 2,000-year period of time since that, and the next event, the rapture of the church. Not one prophecy has to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church. We're snug up against that time. At any moment, that rapture could take place. Listen, at any moment. And my purpose this morning was to give you a litany of things that are going to happen after the rapture of the church. All the rest of Bible prophecy that has been predicted over the years through the ancient Jewish prophets will happen after the rapture of the church. And we looked at Russia and the Ukraine. That'll be after the rapture of the church. We looked at the situation in the Gaza Strip between Hamas and the Israeli Defense Force. That will come to culmination or completion after the rapture of the church. We looked at the temple, standing on the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem at the midway point. That will come after the rapture of the church. We looked at the destruction of Babylon. It has to be powerful. It has to come back into its position and indeed, what you're looking at, in fact, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who has a PhD from MIT here in America, brilliant man, and he made this statement that the people's trying to rebuild Iraq before all of this came about with ICE, the Islamic State. They were putting in a state-of-the-art, cutting-edge telecommunication system. And if you know anything about petroleum around the world, both Saudi Arabia and Iran, who are the number one and two players as far as the production of petroleum products, they're running out. The next major source of petroleum products under the ground there in Iraq. It's going to be the greatest oil source, petroleum products produced from under the earth there in Iraq than has ever been. And that's going to make that piece of real estate, it's going to be the most, well, it's, it's going to be the richest and the most technically hooked in any country in all the world. And that's a part of the end time scenario and so all of these things happen after the rapture of the church and before Jesus Christ comes back. But I want to talk to you tonight about how time has put us in a position to see all these prophecies fulfilled. In the fullness of time, the first coming of Jesus Christ took place. That's in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. In the fullness of time. And the Roman Empire had to be in place, and I'll tell you that in just a moment, why that was the case. But let me tell you this. What the Lord was setting up was for an opportunity for these people that he built into over a couple of years, three and a half years of his ministry on the earth with his disciples, was to have them spread the gospel around the world. If you'll notice the movement of the gospel, it started in Jerusalem. That's where the mother church, that's the home 
church there in Jerusalem at the location where he had resurrected from the dead on the Mount of Olives. And that's where that first church was and a westward movement took place. They went from there to Asia Minor. Asia Minor, they came into Europe with the call of Macedonia. And then from there, they started to spread all over Europe, coming into the British Isles. From there, they jumped over the Atlantic Ocean, and they came to the United States. They spread across the United States, jumped the Pacific, went out into the uh, South Pacific, went on into uh, the area of the Far East, China, in an exciting way. And you know that the Chinese church, and I'm talking about the true church. I'm not talking about any crazy church. I'm not talking about a state-licensed church. But the true church, and most of that is underground over there, as Pastor could really tell us more about it than I even. I've never been there. He's been there a number of times. But that church, they have a theme, and that is back to Jerusalem. That's where they're focused, and they want to take the gospel from China all the way back into Jerusalem, making the complete cycle, and that's how the church started and spread and just about to make a complete cycle into Jerusalem. Well, what the Lord was doing, and the reason uh, Paul wrote in Galatians that uh, in the fullness of time he brought forth his son is because everything was set for that period in history for Jesus Christ to appear. For example, I don't know if you know this, the synagogue system was put in place 2,500 years ago during that 70 years of captivity for the Jewish people in the Babylonian Empire. Remember when they were destroyed, the temple destroyed in 586 B.C., and that's recorded in Second Chronicles 36. When Nebuchadnezzar came in, he burned the temple down. He burned the houses down. He took the remaining third that was still left alive into the Babylonian captivity. Those men were not even hardly able to take their Torah. Now, the Torah, that's the first five books of the Old Testament. But what they had, they did take with them. They had no temple in order to worship. They would worship on a daily basis. They would focus on or turn towards the city of Jerusalem. In fact, what they did, they built a building, and it was called a synagogue. And that's where they would do their worship activities, studying the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament, having their worship, focusing and praying towards Jerusalem. And and it was in that time when the synagogue system came into effect. But also at the same time, the Roman Empire had been set up. It was the controlling force in all the world. There was an infrastructure that the Roman Empire was responsible for called the Roman Roads. I can take you to many locations in Israel. I was just in Turkey. I can take you into Turkey. You can see remains of the original road system. And that infrastructure was important. At the same time, they had a common language called Koine Greek. They had a common currency called the denarius. They had a stability because of the political operation of the revived Roman Empire. Now, wait a minute. Do you see what I'm talking about? A stability of the world at that time when Jesus told his disciples to take off and go to the ends of the world. A infrastructure so they could rock the roadways. They had a common currency, denarius, so they had a way to support themselves, a common language so they could communicate, Koine Greek. And guess what? Had a place to meet. It was called the synagogues. Have you ever noticed what Peter and Paul did? They went into the synagogue. 
when they got into town and would reason with the Jews. For the first 20 years of the church age, only Jews came to know Christ as Lord and Savior. It didn't come to the Gentiles until 10th chapter of the book of Acts up there at the location Caesarea on the shores of the Mediterranean. That first Gentile, Cornelius, a part of the operation of the military operation in Italy, came to know Christ by Peter coming and giving him the gospel. But it was set in place in the fullness of time. Jesus Christ comes forth. God has a plan. He has a plan and had a plan, and there is a plan yet to be fulfilled. I love the thought of that. I stand when I teach at Capernaum at the synagogue where Jesus Christ would have taught and develop how this all came about. What's also very interesting to me is the Roman Empire in place at that time, which was a part of the whole plan. I already talked about the infrastructure. I talked about the common currency, etc. But you know what else was important? You see, the Roman Empire didn't start as a Roman Empire. It was the third phase of what was happening in Rome. It started with a kingdom at Palatine Hill in what is the city of Rome. Seven Hill City, Palatine Hill, ultimately would be where all the Caesars would live. It's right there near the Arch of Titus, which General Titus walked through when he came back victorious after destroying the temple in 70 AD, dispersing the Jews to the four corners of the earth. In fact, that's a tangible evidence of Bible prophecy being fulfilled. When he got back with all the monies, and you know how much money he got, how much treasure he got out of the temple when he destroyed it? In fact, his father, Vespasian, sent him back to destroy it. He said, we got to rebuild the Roman Empire. At that time in 64, Nero allowed Roman Empire to burn down. 69, they had four emperors. 70, Vespasian came to power. And you know what he said to Titus, his son? Go back there and destroy that temple and go in and get the treasure out of it. You know how much treasure was in that temple? 50 tons. 50 tons of gold and silver. They rebuilt the Roman Empire. That Colosseum, the remains of it there in the city of Rome today, that Colosseum was a part of their rebuilding plan. And actually, it was in 753 when Romulus, who the city's named after, he and his brother had a fight as to where they should put up the city of Rome. Romulus won. He killed his brother, built it on Palatine Hill. That was the city of Rome. It was a kingdom from 753 to 509 B.C. Then they put in place what is called the Republic. Where do you think we got our governmental system here in America from? We're not a democracy here in America. We are a representative republic, which means we elect people to represent us in Washington, D.C. Now, that plan is not working like it should because they go down there and they represent themselves. But our problem there is us because we don't replace them. We just let them keep on doing what they want to do. They got that idea from the Roman Republic. At first, the Roman Republic, they elected officials, but the elite and the rich were the only ones that came to power, and ultimately, the common man came to power. And that lasted from 509 B.C. 
ultimately to 27 B.C., about 50 B.C., there was a man came along named Julius Caesar. He was a senator in the Republic. He decided he wanted to put in place an empire. And so he started to do that, and two of the senators assassinated him. But he had a nephew named Augustus Caesar. And Augustus Caesar had a partner named Mark Anthony. And so they came back and they destroyed this element in the Roman society. And they established in 27 BC an empire system. Mark Anthony was, when they divided up the spoils, given Egypt and basically Africa. When he got to Egypt, he fell in love with a girl named Cleopatra. And they decided they were going to overthrow the Roman Empire and put Caesar's, I mean Augustus Caesar out of office. Well, that failed, and Mark Anthony and Cleopatra ultimately committed suicide. Augustus Caesar stayed in power to about 16 A.D., during that period of time of the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, why did I give you that history? Do you know how the kingdom of Rome, the Republican Rome, and the empire punished their criminals? Crucifixion. Crucifixion. They started that in 753 B.C., Do you know it's against God's word to crucify a Jew? Deuteronomy 21 says, Cursed is a man who's hanged on a tree. Joshua chapter 7 says, Burn that individual who's been cursed. Crucifixion wasn't the way of the Jew. Crucifixion was the way of the Roman Empire. I was doing a television program on the crucifixion of Christ and actually where it took place. We were at the Rockefeller Museum in Jerusalem. Josias, who was the curator of the museum, had the only remains of a human bone with a spike through it, and it was a foot bone. And we were talking there about this, and I'd interviewed him. We put the cameras up. We getting ready to leave, and, and Joe said, isn't it interesting how... The Romans used crucifixions to to bring the Jew into doing what they tell him to do. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, Josephus, the greatest Jewish historian, said that at 70 AD, they were crucifying 500 Jews a day on the Mount of Olives. They would put them on an olive tree and crucify them. And listen, then they'd burn them with that olive tree. I don't know if you've ever been to Jerusalem, but as you approach the temple, what's remained of the temple and the temple mount, you go up some steps. Those are the southern steps. You go into Hula Gates. You walk in. But as you're walking up, your peripheral vision will show you what's going on on the Mount of Olives. Those Roman soldiers bivouacked there for three years were doing everything they possibly could to bring these Jews under submission before they had to kill them. And they could see out of the peripheral vision from their eyes as they approached the temple complex, their friends and loved ones being crucified on the Mount of Olives. In the fullness of time, God brought the Roman Empire into existence. 
But as you look at Bible prophecy, and it's what we're going to do tonight, you're going to realize the revived Roman Empire has to be in place for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Do you not remember the, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, second chapter of the book of Daniel? He was playing with all the wise men, and the wise men said, give us the dream, Nebuchadnezzar. We'll give you the interpretation. He said, no, 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 no. You can make up an interpretation. you got to tell me the dream. And God gifted Daniel at 18 years of age in front of the most powerful man in all of the world at that time. And Daniel, gifted by God, gave him the dream. You know what the dream was? A head of gold on this man, a chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, ten toes of iron and clay. A stone comes and destroy that man's image, and that stone becomes a mighty mountain. You know what that is? That's the end-time prophecy. Following the Gentile world powers, it's called the times of the Gentiles. Jesus referred to it often. The last time, Luke 21, verse 24, Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That time of the Gentiles has not been fulfilled. Nebuchadnezzar, according to what Daniel said, the head of gold was the Babylonian Empire. Chest and arms of silver, that's the Medo-Persian Empire. Belly and thighs of brass, that's the Grecian Empire. The legs of iron, that's the Roman Empire. Those ten toes of iron and clay, that's the revived Roman Empire. That stone is Jesus Christ. And that stone that becomes a mighty mountain is his kingdom. And the purpose, one of the main purposes of the tribulation period is to bring the Gentile world powers to an end because the stone is his second coming. We're going to be living in the times of the revived Roman Empire when all this unfolds. Then the kingdom will be set up. Then the great white throne judgment. And so according to Daniel's prophecy and interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar, that Daniel had his own dreams. Go to chapter 7 of the book of Daniel with me. Let me show you something in chapter 7. Now, he's grown up a little bit more. It's about 50 years later. He's probably in his 70s, at least starting to be in his 70s, Daniel chapter 7. And he's going to have a dream. It's going to have the same content, different characters that are going to present it. He has a dream, and in his dream, he sees a great sea. By the way, if you look at any ancient map, you'll see that the Mediterranean is called the Great Sea. And so that has to be fed into our computer bank to understand what the text is talking about. And he's going to talk about out of the Great Sea, out of the Mediterranean region, we're going to see these Gentile world powers. Look here in verse 4. Now this is, and I'm not going to elaborate on this, I'm just going to give you the high points. What it says in verse 4, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings, and I beheld till the wings therefore were plucked off of it. A winged lion is the symbol of the Babylonian Empire. If I could take you to the Ishtar Gate located in the city, literal city of Babylon that's never been destroyed, there on the shores of the Euphrates River in modern-day Iraq, you would see toll two gold-winged lions right beside the Ishtar Gate. When you come to verse 5, he talks about a bear. Now, the bear is never rushes, so get that out of your mind. Never in prophecy is it referred to as a bear. 
the bear here raised up on one side, three ribs in his mouth. That's the Medo-Persian Empire. You see, it's raised on the side because there's no such thing as a co-leader in anything. Co-pastors, that's a misnomer. That's an oxymoron. There's no such thing. One of the men is in charge. And so the bear laying on his side, that means the Persians were the leaders of the Medo-Persian Empire. Three ribs in his mouth, that's the previous three Gentile world powers, the Egyptian Gentile world power, the Assyrian Gentile world power, and the Babylonian Gentile world power. And so by retrospect, we know that is the case, but beforehand we also knew the case. Chapter 8 of the book of Daniel names the Medo-Persian Empire. All you have to do is read scripture. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand Bible prophecy. Six, cha- uh, six verse here in chapter 7. After this, I beheld and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of the fowl, and the beast also had four heads. Now, if you know anything about the Grecian Empire, Alexander the Great, and boy, over there, when I was in Turkey, we were doing that documentary on the seven churches, the messages that Jesus sent to the seven churches. I was excited to realize Pergamos, very interesting community. Pergamos was established by Alexander the Great. In Ephesus, he built the Colosseum where the Apostle Paul would have preached and come under the pressure from the, uh, the, the uh, people who were making images of the multi-breasted Diana. And so Alexander the Great had a very interesting connection there. But at 21 years of age, he took off of the ragtag Operation called it a military operation. They spread across the world in 11 years. By the time he was 32 years old, he had conquered the known world. He was the Roman, excuse me, he was the emperor of the uh, Grecian Empire, and he was headquartered in the city of Babylon. And that came to a conclusion when he died at 32, and his kingdom was then divided into four parts, north, south, east, and west. When you come to verse 7, we see the Roman Empire coming in place, After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth, and it devoured and brake in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, this is the Roman Empire, we know, but it's noted to have ten horns. Now, I'm going to tell you what the ten horns represent. I'll do it in a minute from the Scripture. It's inductive Bible study, if you're interested. But look at verse 8 before I get to that. Verse 8, And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Look here at verse 25 in chapter 7. And he shall speak great words against the Most High God. That's blasphemy. When you go to chapter 13 of the book of Revelation, the most detailed passage on the Antichrist, in verses 1, 5, and 6, it says his design is blasphemy. Blasphemy. Talking to pastor about a preacher here in town, he uses every four-letter word you can think of. That preacher is blaspheming God. Whoever goes over there will be ashamed of themselves. That's blasphemy. That's the design of Antichrist. That's not a figure of him to come, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Blasphemy. Now, I told you about those ten horns in the Roman Empire. Look here in verse 23. 
Again, no rocket science needed here. Just read the word, verse 23. And thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth. Now notice that phrase, the whole earth. When the Roman Empire was in place, it only controlled the Mediterranean region. It controlled every single nation surrounding the Mediterranean. But it only controlled the Mediterranean region, not the whole earth. They didn't realize there was out there a whole earth until Columbus sailed the ocean blue. That's when they became more knowledgeable of it. You know the history. I don't need to go into that. So this revived Roman Empire is going to control the whole earth. That's where we get the idea. It has to be a Roman empire coming into place. Look at verse 24. And the ten horns out of this kingdom, they are ten kings that shall arise, shall arise, future. And another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. And then look at verse 25. He's the one that speaks blasphemy against the most high God. This is the first mention of the Antichrist. The Antichrist is going to come to power out of the revived Roman Empire. He has 27 different names. Let's just look at a couple of them. Look here again at verse 8. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn. That's one of the names for Antichrist. Go to chapter 9. Chapter 9, one of the most powerful passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. Look at verse 26. It's talking about the crucifixion of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It talks about the destruction of the temple and the city. Verse 26, and after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Now notice, and the people of the prince that shall come. That's another name for Antichrist. The prince that shall come, coming from the Gentile world. He's not going to be a Jew. He's going to be a Gentile. Why would the Jews accept him as their Messiah? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Those who have rejected the love of the truth that they might be saved, God shall send them a strong delusion so that they believe the lie of Satan, they believe the lie of Antichrist. And so the people of the prince that shall come, the Roman people, where that prince will come from, is giving us evidence, one of the names for the Antichrist, the prince that shall come. Go to chapter 11. Chapter 11, and and let's look here in, in verse 36. And the king shall do according to his will. The willful king. That's another name for Antichrist. Just a couple of thoughts about him. Look up here what it says in verse 37. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. And I want to tell you what the Hebrew says, not what the English translation says. It says, nor the desire of women. The word ha, H-A. That's the in Hebrew. That word is not in the Hebrew. It says he will not desire women. Which may be strong evidence that he's a sodomite. Sodomy running rampant across our world, setting the stage for the appearance of Antichrist. Now, he could be bisexual. He could be heterosexual and a sodomite. You can't mark that out. But he will have some connection 
with the Sodomites. If I could take you over to Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, it would talk about the fact that this Antichrist is going to do something that will be involved in devastating the temple that will be standing in the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus Christ calls him a false messiah. That abomination of desolation spoken of over there in Matthew 24 and Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, it's talked about the way it'll progress over in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, where it says the wicked one, the son of perdition, the man of sin, three additional names for the Antichrist will walk into the temple and perform the abomination of desolation. What he's going to do, he's going to get in the Holy of Holies and claim to be God. Isaiah 14 said that's what Satan was going to do. I shall rise above God. I shall be worshipped in Jerusalem. He had five times he said, I will. He exercised his free will. He was locked into it. You get over in the book of Revelation, chapter 13 and verse 1, and you see another name, the beast, rising up. In fact, let's go to chapter 13 and verse 1 of the book of Revelation. Chapter 13 and verse 1. Notice what it says here, and this is a continuation of the prophecy. My message tonight would have to be entitled, Rome Rising. Rome had to be in place, the Roman Empire, for the first coming of Jesus Christ. And Rome has to rise to power once again for the second coming of Christ. Look what it says here, chapter 13, verse 1. This is John the Revelator speaking. I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. Now I'll stop right there. That's apocalyptic literature. A beast rising up out of the sea, seven heads, ten horns. That's apocalyptic literature. It's a symbol that the Lord is using to communicate an absolute truth. Thus, hermeneutically, we have to find a passage of Scripture that's going to define this, that's going to give the interpretation for us. And we can go back to Daniel, what I've just given to you. Where did those beasts come out of the, from? The sea. The sea in the text in Daniel chapter 7, and in fact here in the book of Revelation, we'll look at it chapter 17, is the Gentile world. And so this beast, the Antichrist, again we have an affirmation that he's going to come out of the Gentile world. The sea, the people, if you don't believe that, go to chapter 17. We see seven heads and ten horns. We go over to chapter 17. We're talking about the rise of the Roman Empire. We're talking about the ruler first, Antichrist, who comes on the scene. When you get to chapter 17, you'll see the word beast used eight times. In fact, the word beast from chapter 13, verse 1, all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, is used 42 times. And each time it's referring to the Antichrist. You might remember when you go back and study Revelation, the dragon is referring to Satan, that old devil, Satan himself, chapter 12 and verse 9. So I'm just simply using the Scripture to interpret the Scripture. And that's what we're looking at here when we get to chapter 17. When we get to chapter 17, look up here just a moment. Chapter 17 is the first half of this period of time called the Tribulation. The last half is going to be chapter 18. We focused on that this morning. The first half of the, three and a half, of the seven years, the first three and a half years, will be chapter 17 of the book of Revelation. When you look in chapter 17, you're going to see some words that are repeated. Three of times in this chapter, you're going to see the word whore, W-H-O-R-E, used. 
You're going to see the word woman used six times. Nine times it's going to be referring to a non-virgin, non-virtuous woman. Remember, that's apocalyptic literature. What is the opposite of a whore, a non-virtuous, non-virgin woman? A virtuous, virgin woman. And in Corinthians, Paul said, I want to present the church as a chastened virgin. So what we're talking about, without going into a long explanation, time, of course, limits us to what we really would love to do, but we're talking about the false church in chapter 17. And it's going to come to power in the city of Rome. How do I know that? Well, don't you remember when that beast rose up out of the sea, it had seven heads? Look here. In the same context, go to verse 3 of chapter 17. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman, that's the false church, a whore, sitteth upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy. That would be talking about the Antichrist, that beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. There's that apocalyptic phrase, seven heads. What does it mean? Go over here to verse 9. You want some wisdom? Here it is, verse 9. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And the city of Rome was established on Palatine Hill, one of the seven mountains. It's talking about the city of Rome. The city of Rome will be the headquarters for this false religiosity. A false religiosity that comes to power with the Antichrist. The false religion rides the beast into power. The most important city, and I said this in a promotion this morning, in the future, beginning with the beginning of the tribulation period, is the city of Rome, Italy. It comes to power where the Antichrist is going to be headquartered and he's going to be dealing with a false religiosity. As you go through here, you'll see verse 5. Verse 5 talks about, and the word mystery is not with the title. That's talking about what it is, a mystery, something that was not known in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament. But I'm going to tell you this. It says, Babylon, the mother of all harlots. You see, the royalty comes to power, the Antichrist. He's going to control a religiosity. Keep your finger here. Mark your spot in Revelation 17. Go back to the book of Genesis. All Bible prophecy begins in the book of Genesis. If you want to understand Bible prophecy, you need to understand the book of Genesis. It's the foundation for Bible prophecy. You remember this morning we talked about the beginning of nations, chapter 10, when the sons of Noah were being obedient and they went out and started to repeople the earth. Go to chapter 11. The great-grandson of Noah is going to go against what God, what Yahweh, we talk about Jehovah. Now, that's not the best name for God. Yahweh used 8,000 times in the Old Testament as the true name of God. And old Nimrod, great-grandson of Noah, in your face, Yahweh, we're not going to do what you told us to do. Be fruitful, multiply, and repeople the earth. Chapter 11, verse 4. And here's what Nimrod said. And they said, go to, let us build us a city. Now that's chapter 18, really, of the book of Revelation. But look at the next part of the verse. And let us build us a tower whose top may reach into heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. 
Do you understand what he's talking about? That's the establishment of a false religion. Let us build us a tower whose top may reach into heaven. I want you to know something. That's the last place Nimrod wanted to go. But the remains at Babylon on the shores of the Euphrates River of that tower are there, that foundation. And he was building a tower supposedly into heaven. It was an obelisk. You remember the Washington Monument, how it stands? It is so vulgar what that represents. I can't say it in mixed company. So vulgar. But he was going to build a religion. He says, lest we be scattered upon the face of the earth, we want to make ourselves a name. That's not talking about being popular. They were the only people in the world. That was a city. That was called Babel. He wasn't talking about who are we going to be popular in front of. He said, let us make us a name. We don't like the name Yahweh. How about uh, Marduk? Marduk, the name of the Babylonian God. Nimrod had a wife. Now, this is extra biblical source. I tell you my source is Dr. John Walford. A student, professor, president, chancellor of Dallas Theological Seminary may well have been the greatest prophetic scholar we've ever had in my lifetime. And and his research and other men's research I could bring to the table talk about this religiosity that was started at Babel. And Nimrod with his wife Semiramis and with their son Tammuz started this mother-son cult. Both the mother, Semiramis, the son, Tammuz, would be recipients of worship. A mother-son cult started at Babel 4,500 years ago. Both the mother and the son are mentioned in the scriptures. Go over to Jeremiah chapter 7. In Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah chapter 44, the title for Semiramis is mentioned. Look at Jeremiah chapter 7, starting in verse 18. And here's the activity for the worship of this Semiramis, mother of the mother-son cult. And it was an annual worship time, and here's what they did. Verse 18, and the children gathered the wood and the fathers kindled the fire and the women needed their dough to make cakes to the queen of heaven. That's the title for Semiramis, the queen of heaven. You know when they were doing this? They were preparing hot cross buns or cinnamon buns for a great celebration. Additional information helps us to understand what that was talking about. You know what else they did besides having hot cross buns to celebrate the queen of heaven? Oh, they hard-boiled eggs, painted them in a beautiful color, took these hard-boiled painted eggs and put them out in the woods, gave their children a little basket, and said, go find the hard-boiled eggs. That'll be a special blessing to you. And they would do that. You know what the day of celebration for this false religiosity was? Ishtar. Ishtar, a pagan holy day. And you know what God said about Ishtar and making those hard-boiled colored eggs for the children to pick up and having hot cross buns? Look back up here in verse 16. Here's what God tells Jeremiah. Therefore, pray not thou for this people, neither lift up nor cry prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear thee. I'm not even going to hear your prayers. 
if you're praying for people like that, that are involved in this pagan worship system on Ishtar with the queen of heaven. The son, his name was Tammuz. He's mentioned, go to Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel. You know, in Ezekiel 8, 9, 10, and 11, you see a progression of what's going to happen. Ezekiel is already in the Babylonian captivity. He's on the Chabar River, a tributary of the Euphrates over there in a place called Tel Aviv, not Tel Aviv of Israel, but Tel Aviv in Babylon at that time, biblical Babylon. And the Lord comes and gets him, and I don't think it's just a vision because he grabs him by the nap of the hair, and he brings him back into Jerusalem. And when they get to the temple complex, all that he can see, Ezekiel sees these portraits of idolatrous worship. When he comes to the beginning, there's an obelisk in front of the temple, that vulgar symbol. He walks in. Let's say that this is the holy place. Let's say that cross up there is the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. Every priest, 28,000 of them, when their duties are to serve in the temple, should be focused on the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant because between the cherubim in that Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies is where the glory of the Lord is, hovering between the cherubim. That's the mercy seat. And instead of looking up there, they had their backs to the Holy of Holies, looking out the entrance to the temple, the temple always faces east. And, and, and what were they doing there? Well, let's see what the text says. Verse uh, chapter, just a minute, let me get it over, chapter 8. And, and, and look what it tells us they are doing. Chapter 8 and verse 16. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the door of the temple, the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men. These were priests with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they worship the sun towards the east. But wait a minute, they see something else, a convent of virgins. Look up here in verse 14. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz, that son of the mother's son cult. And so this Babylonian false religion had spread out of Babylon, and it spreads into all the world. It's now taking over all the worship of those Jews left in Jerusalem. Before that last wave by Nebuchadnezzar in 586, when he takes all the Jews out and destroys that temple. By the way, the Babylonian Empire fell in 539 B.C. That mother-son cult, which had permeated all of society, moved its headquarters from Babylon. You're not going to believe where they moved to. Pergamos. That third city in Revelation chapter 2. It's there the other day. That is the location he called Jesus when he wrote the letter to those in Pergamos, the seat of Satan. You know what he's referring to when he first said that? The temple of Zeus. Zeus was the father of all the mystical Greek gods. But when that passed, this mother-son cult moved into Pergamos. In Pergamos, that's where they watched the Roman emperors become deified 
became God's. I could take you to Pergamos right now. I could show you the title, the religious title that came into existence to the, through the time of the Republic of Roman society, where they named the highest religious leader in the Roman society during the time of the Republic. They gave him a title. You know what it was? Pontifus Maximus, which means major keeper of the bridge, the bridge between God and man. They started developing this mother-son cult in Pergamos. They wore purple and scarlet outfits. They wore a fish-shaped hat, which had Pontifus Maximus on it. They put together a group of men who would serve as priests. They put together a group of women who would serve as the virgins that would help operate this. And they called the leader Pontifus Maximus. That was too long. They shortened it to pontiff. And then they shortened it to pope. I haven't said Catholic. So don't put in my mouth what you think I'm saying. I'm telling you what history records in Pergamos. With the fall of the Roman Empire, 476 A.D., that mother-son cult moved its headquarters to the seven-hilled city of Rome. And that's what chapter 17 is all about. And so we see that revived Roman Empire has to come to power. It's going to have royalty, the Antichrist. It's going to have religion, the false religion of the world. But it's going to have rulers as well. Go back to chapter 17 of the book of Revelation. You remember in chapter 13, we saw that this beast rising up out of the sea had seven heads and ten horns. Look here at chapter 17, verse 3 again. And the woman was on a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads. That's the seven mountains of the city of Rome. And it had ten horns. Go to verse 12. This is interpreting apocalyptic literature. What's the symbol mean? It's interpreted by the scripture. Verse 12. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which shall receive no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. The beast, the Antichrist. These ten coming to power... These rulers, now it could be kings or kingdoms. A kingdom has to have a king. Or it could be 10 units of something. The 10 horns back in chapter 7, verse 7 of Daniel, is talking about the revived Roman Empire. That was interpreted by the book itself. And there's an infrastructure out there for the revival of the Roman Empire, which has to be in place at the time of Jesus Christ. That infrastructure was established March the 25th, 1957, when six European leaders met on Capitol Line Hill in the city of Rome, signed the Treaty of Rome. That introduced the common market, the European economic community. Over these years, since 57, that has evolved into what we know today as the European Union. Hillary Clinton in 2009 was in Brussels, Belgium, which is the headquarters for the Roman, I'm sorry, Freudian slip, for the European Union today. And she said the most amazing event in all of history had just happened because on the 3rd of November, 2009, in Lisbon, Portugal, they signed the Lisbon Treaty. I got a copy of it right here in my briefcase. And that Lisbon Treaty gelled 
the European Union. At that time, they had just 17 states in the European Union. I'm sorry, 27 states. Now they have 28 states. Hillary Clinton made this amazing statement about history. And that was the putting together. Oh, by the way, those 28 states, that's too much to handle. And so in that Lisbon Treaty, they have a section called the Committee of Regions, and they're putting regions together. And you can read it. It's on my website as well. You can read it if you'd like to. They're calling for 10 regions for the Roman Empire. When I was just in Rome with a guide, I said, are you Italian? She said, no, I'm Roman. That blew me away. I'm a Roman citizen. You know the Roman Empire never died because if it died, it could not be revived. You don't revive something that's dead. You resurrect something that's dead. You know where in 476 A.D. the Roman Empire went? Into the British Isles. Have you not been paying attention to what's happening over there in London where they were digging a foundation for a high-rise building? And as they dug down, they found the archaeological remains of the headquarters for the Roman Empire. You go to Scotland, all over Scotland, they have archaeological digs of the military operations with the Habsburgs, the Hungarian-Austrian coming together of these one family, basically. They established the kings and queens of all these European nations. Do you know they're all cousins? All of them related? Queen Elizabeth is a part of that old Roman Empire. The remnants of it. It'll be resurrected. That'll be the rulers, which are called for here in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Let me show you what happens. As the Lord lifts these political leaders to power, go to verse 16, chapter 17 and verse 16. And the ten horns, that's the revived Roman Empire, which thou sawest upon the beast, that's the Antichrist, these shall hate the whore, that's the false religiosity in Rome, Italy, and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. They're going to destroy the rebellion against this false church is going to take place. You have royalty, you have religiosity, you have rulers, and then the rebellion where they do away with this false religion because Antichrist has moved to the position, I don't want you to worship something else, I want you to worship me. Why do these people destroy this false religion? Look at verse 17. God has and will and is in the future going to use human government. Notice what he said. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will. God puts it in the hearts and minds of political world leaders to destroy this false religion. And he wants to be worshipped. Now tell me. Look up here, please. Tell me what happens after he destroys that false religion at the midway point of the tribulation. Where does Antichrist go? He leaves Rome, Italy, the most important city in the immediate future. And he goes to Jerusalem. And what's there? A temple. I spoke about it this morning. And he walks into that temple. 
and he desecrates it. And then they put an image of the beast, chapter 13, verses 14 to 16, in that temple. And the whole world at that time, not us, we're out of here at the rapture. The whole world is caused to worship that image of the beast. It can move, it can talk. Satanic miracles. Do you understand what I'm saying? Never in the history of the world have we been here for royalty, the Antichrist, to come on the scene, for a false religion to be headquartered in Rome, Italy. And in that same city, the revival of the Roman Empire, a worldwide government. And then the rebellion of that religiosity destroyed an antichrist making his way to a temple in Jerusalem that can be built in six months. We're here. At that time, like never before in history, only thing that has to happen for all of these prophecies I've been talking to you about to be fulfilled, one thing, and we're out of here to see Jesus. And that, according to the text, could happen at any moment. And having said that, let me conclude with this. If this is all true, it's predicated on the fact God's word is absolute, like pastor's going to teach starting next Sunday. If this is all true, how then ought we to live at this time in history? Father, we're so grateful for your word. I'm amazed. I'm amazed at your word, but I'm amazed also at the confidence that you have in me and others who've been able to look and search the scriptures and recognize where we are. Uh, That's amazing, but what really I'm amazed about is that you trusted me and others with this book. It's the foundation of understanding the future. It's the foundation for living that life until the future is fulfilled. And I'm amazed you gave it to us. Help us to be attentive to what it says, to recognize the times in which we're living And then appropriate those truths. Not to know who the Antichrist is. Not to know where the false church is going to be. But to recognize. It says in Daniel chapter 2. He was having his quiet time in the book of Jeremiah. And he read according to the prophecy that he was living in the time discussed. And the rest of Daniel 
from chapter 9, verse 3 to 23. He falls on his face. One of the most godly men that ever lived on the face of the earth, Daniel, fell on his face, confessing his sins. God is right. His life right because he recognized the times in which he was living. Lord, help us to do that this night. My precious name we pray with thanksgiving.